Welcome to another episode of the Dose of Leadership podcast, the show that brings you inspiring and educational interviews with today's most relevant and motivating leaders. Each episode is dedicated to highlight real-life leadership and influence experts who dedicate their lives to the pursuit of the truth, common sense, and courageous leadership. And now, here's your host, Richard Ryerson. Hey, welcome to Dose of Leadership. So happy you're tuning into the show. Great guest today, Christina Long is on the show. She's an entrepreneur community builder who's passionate about diversity, inclusion, and economic development through entrepreneurship. Her background in education, uh, working for Kansas's largest public school system, as well as her years reporting for the state's largest newspaper, the Wichita Eagle, has helped long develop an expertise in crafting, packaging, and delivering messages for a variety of audiences. She talks about this in in our conversations. She's dedicated to this community. That's one thing I really love about her. She serves as the president and CEO of Create Campaign Incorporated which is a nonprofit here in Wichita, Kansas, which helps urban entrepreneurs launch, innovate, and excel. He also serves as the historian for the Wichita Urban Professionals, editor of its premier publication, Urban Magnet, and is a leader of Network Kansas, Wichita Urban E-Community, and a board member of the Wichita Regional Chamber of Commerce. Man, she has had a lot of stuff going on. Recent awards include being named the Wichita Regional Chamber's Exceptional Young Leader, Wichita Urban Professionals' Urban Woman Professional of the Year. She's in 40 Under 40. Kansas Minority Business Advocate of the Year by the Kansas Department of Commerce Office of Minority and Women's Business, and an Emerging Leader, which is a distinct honor by something that the Wichita Business Journal bestows upon select individuals each year. She graduated from Wichita State, like me, earning a degree in communications, emphasis in journalism, married to a fabulous leader in his own right, Jonathan Long, which I have tremendous admiration for, and she's got three kids. She's um, I met her about five years ago, and I just have always wanted to collaborate on something with her. We haven't yet, but we've stayed in contact, and uh, I'm one of her biggest fans. I think she's just her her composed tenacity is how I like to describe her. And she's the type of, you know, when I talk about leadership, you hear me talk about the four C's, being composed, confident, consistent, and courageous. She is all four of those. Look, she's not a, a superhuman. She admits it. And she's just like you or me. And she struggles with limiting beliefs like we all do. And, um, but she's intentional, she's tenacious, and she, the, the composure level, all of that, composed, confident, consistent, and courageous is something I would definitely describe Christina Long. And you're really going to enjoy this conversation. She is the real deal. And uh, I just love her authenticity, her vulnerability, and most importantly, her, her tenacious composure. And uh, I just think you're really going to enjoy this conversation. The show is brought to you by my friends at Equity Bank. It's really been a privilege and an honor having them be a sponsor of this show for the past 19, 20 months. Equity Bank, I truly believe, is a team that knows what it takes to start and grow a business. They know what it means to be a leader, leader of yourself and a leader of an organization. And it's been exciting to watch them grow into one of the fastest growing banks here in the Midwest. They're now listed on the NASDAQ exchange. They got locations all across Kansas, as well as Oklahoma, Missouri, and Arkansas. And clearly, this team at Equity Bank knows how to lead for growth. I'm a huge fan of them. If it feels like your current bank is more of a follower than a leader and you want to work with a bank that really understands your needs, check out my friends at Equity Bank. Go to equitybank.com to learn more. All right, let's jump into this conversation with Christina Long here on Dose of Leadership. Christina, I'm so glad you came on the show. Welcome to Dose of Leadership. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. How long have we known each other? I was trying to think about that this morning. I think around 2015. Yeah, because that's when the whole 
E to E thing was kicking off, and that's when we met. Yeah, I've always been a fan of you since then, and your work ethic and and, and your kind of stick to it. If this, if that's the right word to say, if that's even yeah. a word, and like your tenacity, I guess is the right way to put it. You seem like a very tenacious person. Is is that a fair statement? Oh, it depends on who you ask. <laughs> you ask my mom, she calls it chaos in the middle. Chaos in the middle. <laughs> she said, there's brilliance that come out, but you're my child who cannot go from A to Z. It's chaos in the middle. And then others see me as so focused and intentional. And um, it's interesting to see. Yeah. So let's go back. So you're, you're, you're Wichita native, right? Yes. Born and bred here. Yeah. Where did where did you go to school? What was your dreams? All that. To bring me up to speed on that. Absolutely. So I grew up in Wichita's historic African-American community. Um, my dad's a preacher. My mom was an accountant, had two younger sisters. And learning, the love of learning and education just was always something that was in our household. Um, we were also a very faith-based family as well. So, you know, going and being identified, for example, for gifted and talented when I was younger, that's only because my parents taught me and my sisters how to read as soon as we could talk, essentially. So those are my parents. Um, went through Wichita Public Schools the whole way. Um, you know, OK Elementary, Washington Elementary, Brooks, um, East High, Blue Ace, graduated in 99. And then um, I went to KU my first two years of school. I knew that I wanted to be a journalist very early on when I was in middle school. And so being able to be connected with the Wichita Eagle was something that was amazing. But I went to KU my first two years, came back home, graduated from WSU, and was immediately just plugged back into the Wichita Eagle Network. So the journalism, what inspired you to journalism? Why journalism? Yeah, so I knew that I loved writing. I loved writing from the time I was young. Um, but I didn't want to be a novelist. And so when I was in eighth grade over at Brooks, Mark McCormick yeah. and Joe Rodriguez. Went to school with him. Okay, very yeah. good, very good. They came and just did a classroom presentation on journalism and what a day in the life of a reporter was like. And at the end of it, they asked if anybody wanted to come take a tour of the newsroom, take them up on the offer. And I actually did. So I was in eighth grade when I first stepped foot in the Wichita Eagle wow. and fell in love with just the whole environment. Yeah, the environment was amazing from the press runs to the the press runners who had ink all over their hands, <laughs> or, right. you know, shaking our hands to the busyness of the newsroom, the police scanners going off. Every desk was filled at that time. Um, it was just an amazing environment. And I sold. I was like, this is how I can actually uh, do my writing in a way that makes sense. Um, and like I said, I was sold. Was it because – is it to tell stories or to – reveal the truth? I mean, what is it to you? Well, I mean, they'll school you in journalism that you are there for the public good and you yeah. are there to be, you know, a champion for the community and all of these things and to be a watchdog. I never really loved the watchdog part of it. Mm -hmm. I honestly just wanted another platform. As I was older, I figured this out. I wanted a platform to be able to tell stories from communities of color in a way that's holistic, uh, more representative. And so when I graduated from college, they said, you know, you've been here for so long. You have a job. We know you can write. Um, I did several internships and things. So they knew I could write. So they said, well, what do you want to write? And I could have taken the safe route at that time and just been a general assignment reporter. Um, but I said, you know what? I'm going to try to do what I actually want to do. And so I said that I wanted to cover Wichita's ethnic and minority communities. And they said, okay, that's great. They said, well, what would you call your beat? And I said, I'd be the cultural affairs reporter. And that's what I got to do for six years at the Eagle. And it was an incredible experience. It was challenging. I was in my early 20s. Yeah. Um, and just being in your early 20s with such a public role uh, yeah. as you're coming into yourself, that was an interesting dynamic. But um, I'm so glad that I had that experience. Well, that sounds very intriguing because I can imagine what 
you, you went into it and for six years, you go into it, you probably thought it would be like this. And six years later, it's like, whoa. And, you know, you got the luxury of time and to see how it, you know, kind of played out. What, what did you learn during those six years that was so? Well, um, I'll tell you what was scary first. I saw the, we mentioned it before, the writing on the wall as related to the industry. People did oh, not yeah. subscribe. Um, all those desks that used to be filled up when I first toured the Eagle, um, they were gone. You know, these were people who had seen me when I was in middle school growing up. And to see how the industry was uh, resulting in people being laid off mm-hmm. and furloughed, that was just really scary. That was on the industry side. And it impacted newspapers across the country. Still it's late. not exactly specific to the Eagle. In terms of me personally, I was a young mother at that time. I had two children and managing, again, being early 20s, um, having children, not knowing when you go in for a work day, if you're going to work eight hours, or if you're going to be there 14 because of news cycles and I didn't stories. I think about that. You're right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so that was interesting, too. And then also the public face of journalism, where you're known by your byline, your reputation, all of that matters. And for people, because of the stories that I was covering, seeing me as a beacon, a champion for um, their stories to be told, but then having sometimes to come back in the newsroom where I am one of the only people of color and then challenging assumptions about what is um, newsworthy versus telling, again, stories in the way that, in my mind, best and most accurately represented the stories we were trying to cover. Yeah, that seemed like that would I could see how that could be extremely challenging because you're like, oh, man, and you're probably all excited and like this is a fascinating story. And then you get there and you probably got to try to sell it. Right. And sometimes you could and sometimes you weren't successful. Right. And there were some times when uh, I would bring story ideas back and they'd be like, well, don't you have anything that's negative? Don't you? (laughs) You're always bringing positive news. And that's great. I understand uh, we have a saying just in the newspaper industry and pass if it bleeds it leads and that just means you know that the stories that the public are attracted to tend not to always be those positive uplifting stories if you look at any news cycle yeah. that's why crime yeah. go crime and weather <laughs> yeah you know it's interesting you, you brought up weather I had Cheryl Atkinson on my show years ago and she used to work for CBS News and she's she's the investigative side and when she was on my show this was three three or four years ago she said the exact same thing and she said it was so frustrating because her passion was she wants to peel back the layers and reveal the truth. doesn't matter, right? And she's pretty politically agnostic. She says she is. You know, she'll attack corporations and, and fraud and government and everything else. And she really I – mean, she's got a lot of credit to – you know, she's, she's burned a lot of bridges on the politics and the corporate <laughs> side. But that being said, she said the exact same thing. And she left CBS because it's so bad now. To where she said, like, this is like, you know, a powerful, true story that people need to know. And then it gets up the chain and it gets squashed because the money says, well, we can't offend this. We can't do that. And this donor and nada, yada. And so what do they do? They end up. And I started paying attention when she said this. I go turn on the major ABC, CBS, NBC, and it always leads off with weather. It was hot today and New York City, you know, and and then the tornadoes and this, and you're like, yep. Whoa. And I guess that's because, like you said, if it bleeds, it leads. Yep. Right? People will always care about the weather, and there that portion of us in our humanity that's curious about things that are bad. Yeah. 
Um, that that's what drives the clicks. If you even notice, I mean, look at how the industry has changed. When I was coming up in the industry, we weren't writing headlines like you see headlines now. Uh, we didn't do things the way that, you know, social media was just taking shape at that time. Now the newspaper headlines mirror clickbait. Yeah, it's true. So I got out at a good time. Yeah, you got out <laughs> at a good time. And so as you're looking at the writing on the wall, it's like, man, I, I can see this isn't, you know, I'm not going to have a career in journalism here. What was it then? You're like, okay, what do I, was it Was it an act of necessity? Was it an act of passion, a combination of the both? What was it? What did you say? What did you do? It was, um, we had what we call stand-up meetings every week. It's where everybody stood up and kind of was um, apprised of what was happening in terms of our parent company. And one particular stand-up meeting, the publisher came up and talked about furloughs. Um, and I went back to my desk and I said, I've got to make a change. Mm-hmm. And so I started looking up jobs and I found uh, Wichita Public Schools has a family and community engagement office. And their work is to help um, students be more successful and supported by having better relationships between parents and the communities and teachers. And so I actually put together my resume and which was hard. I was supposed to be a journalist, but okay. Yeah. So I put together my resume and I sent it off to the department. I got a call momentarily. I mean, it was just a matter of a few minutes when um, the the head of the department called and said, we saw you applied for this particular position in our division, but we really think you'd be a great fit here. And so I said, sure, I'll be more than happy to come in for an interview. And I was accepted into that team. And Richard, when I tell you, it was one of the best things for my life. Really? It was. Um, I had been nurtured and, and grown in journalism, and that was fantastic. But there's something to having to always be perfect. Again, as your reporter, you're a byline, and you have to get everything accurate. If you don't, your credibility is yeah. at stake. So having to get and meet that threshold consistently of perfection was something else. And I didn't realize it until I was with the uh, Wichita Public Schools and the Family and Community Engagement Office, where I was put on a team where we were expected to be our best, but knowing we are not perfect at everything. So our team was compiled and constructed by looking at our personality traits and our work skills and where our weaknesses um, began, someone else's strengths picked up. It was dynamic. Yeah, It was dynamic to be your best self in the workplace. Was that it, I can see, you know, as an outsider looking in, I can see how, okay, you're, you're spending the six years as this cultural affairs reporter. The connections, the, I mean, your, your, your relationships, connections, seeing what's really happening in the community, all that's building up. And now I can see now you get this job here mm-hmm. and you're probably for the first time, starting to become more intentional about who you are as a, I'm I'm sensing as a leader, right? When you're the beat, you're just trying to, you know, yeah. And now you're starting to get a little more. I'm just sensing. I'm just. You guessing. are. You're, you're absolutely right, Jack. And I, I can see how that experience, this experience, yeah. is leading up to where we are now. Am, exactly. Is that right? You're yeah. absolutely right. And of course, I didn't know it going through there. Right. But we had uh, Jackie, Jackie Legrand. She was the district yeah. um, person, long time. She built the department, but she was the type of leader, not just teaming everyone, but also investing in us. So we did tons of book studies on things like the Four Agreements, um, Seven Habits of Highly Effective 
of people. Yeah. I mean, all of those texts were being poured into us as we were trying to ensure that great relationships were happening between the community and schools. So crucial conversations, navigating cultural dynamics, um, all of that was still part of the work. And an added bonus was I also got to learn how to build curriculum and how to teach adults how to learn because I didn't teach students. I wasn't that type of instructor. We were working with principals and teachers on ways, again, to have better rapport and relationships with families in ways that supported students. Wow. What a, I mean, that's a great, emer- I don't know. I mean, to be, you're, you're still in your, I'm guessing, what, your late 20s then when you started? I was mid. Mm-hmm. Mid? Mid 20s. To get immersed in that? Yeah. Which was fantastic, too, Um, and also challenging because when I hired on, I was part of a group of 24 that got cut to 12, that got cut to six. And finally, um, when Ms. Jackie decided to retire, they put her position up and many members on the team, including myself, interviewed for it. And it ended up being me. I was selected to lead the division. At that time, um, it was myself and then one admin support. And then a few years after I took the helm, they took the support. So it was me serving 91 schools, doing payroll for babysitters, and it was a lot. And you've learned a lot. I mean, I I think about that. I mean, most people, to go through that much experience in that short a time, I mean, that's just, I don't know, that's a wealth of knowledge and experience in a short amount of time. It was. It was. Coupled on the fact that, like you mentioned, I was maturing and growing. And um, one thing that I have always done for my life is I do not make New Year's resolutions. I make birthday resolutions. And so um, on the eve of my 30th birthday, when I was 29, I asked myself, having read The Seven Habits of Highly Successful People, the author has one habit that says begin with the end in mind. Mm -hmm. And so I said, well, I'm about to turn 30, but if I look ahead to 40, And I continue to live my life as I'm living it now. Will I have the type of life that I really want to have at 40? And the answer was no. Yeah. The answer was no. So as great as the career was, kids are growing up and all those things, I wasn't going to make it um, and build the life that I wanted to have. And so I backtracked and I said, okay, if I want 40 to look like this, what behaviors and what actions do I need to take? And Yeah. And I went to Barnes & Noble. Picked out the prettiest journal I could find. <laughs> I told myself, if I write a promise to myself in this journal, it has to happen. And I thought that if every one of these promises happened, how will I feel? And immediately Janet Jackson's cover of Design of a Decade came to my mind because she looks at peace. And I said, that's it. And so I just hashtagged all of these promises designing my decade. And I started charting them on Facebook just as a reminder to myself. And it's kind of taken hold. But I tell you, I am 39 now. I'm about to be 40. And almost every uh, promise in that book I've made, there's four that I have to work on. I love that, Christy. I mean, I love that intentionality behind that. And to do that when you're 29, going on to 30 yeah. and 40. Most, it was life-changing. Most people don't do that. You know, I know I didn't do that. I was just kind of going on the kind of – and I think this is the vast majority of us out there. We're going on the script that is generated whatever groups and communities we're with and the pop culture and everything else, right? But as I 
learned doing the show and having 400 plus conversations that you're right. It's the intentionality. Behind. Look, all these concepts are easy to understand, right? It's like, it's easy to understand. Like, I just need to treat you like I want to be treated, right? right? Um, you know, <laughs> right. just the golden rule. But why do we make it so difficult, you know? And it's because our ego gets in the way, I think, you and know? And we don't want to change behaviors. And we don't want to change behaviors. And that's the critical piece is the behavior and the mindset that comes with it. They're one and the same. Um, and I just, I was putting everything and everyone ahead of me. And I said, okay, again, I can bring my best to the job, but am I being my best doing this? Because I approach each day of let me do my best each day. And that was getting me so far. But what if I was able to channel my best to that end goal? Oh my gosh, it broke things open in my life that I never imagined. Hey, we're about halfway through the conversation, but I wanted to take the time to talk about my good friends, the sponsor here of the special series at Equity Bank. Have you ever noticed that most business bankers seem to really understand just one thing? It's banking, right? And not a lot about business. It makes sense since most banks were built generations ago and now they're often run by caretakers, not business builders. Well, it's not the case here at Equity Bank. The bankers at Equity Bank didn't inherit a bank generations ago. They built one of their own. They know that building something takes expertise, vision, and hard work. And over the past decade, they've built one of the region's fastest-growing banks by working side-by-side with customers, with entrepreneurs, with leaders in communities all throughout Kansas, Missouri, Arkansas, and Oklahoma. Recently, Equity Bank was listed on the NASDAQ exchange, which gives them even greater capabilities to take on those big deals that growing businesses need to keep on growing. So if you're tired of talking to bankers who've never really ran or owned or built a business, then I think you're going to be pleasantly surprised when you talk to my friends at Equity Bank. Thanks for listening to this show. Let's get back to the conversation, this unique and special series on leadership and entrepreneurship brought to you by my friends at Equity Bank. And I think having the ability to be, well, certainly being authentic and transparent is a, is a requirement to go down that path. Yeah. But I think to be forgiving too, because I think mm-hmm. one thing I've learned through all this, everybody is dealing with the limiting beliefs. And, and so talk me through that a little bit. I know you have them. You had them today. I had them today. You have them every day. How do you tackle those? And that's what's impressive about that. You got 10 years and you've almost met every one of those promises. That's a, there's a battle limiting beliefs going on in that. You know what I mean? How do you do that? How do you personally deal with the dragons, as I call them, that always rear their ugly heads? (laughs) I mean, it, it's taken a lot. There have been bouts of depression, um, because now I'm in a space where After I left the district, I started my, uh, well, no, no. I started a company while I was at the district as well, doing graphic design and communication services. And that has led me to a whole nother life that I thought I'd never live, the third reinvention, (laughs) someone calls it. Um, But through it, you have doubts. You know, am I being my best? Am I doing my best? Um, I'm not right for this room. I'm not right for this role. And so being able to surround yourself with uh, good mentors, but also taking time, I pray, you know, I pray for discernment and taking time to realize that there are inherent within each and every one of us special gifts and special skills. And it is absolutely okay to step out on those gifts and those skills um, in ways that you can be your best self, and it's all right. And coming from, again, the faith background, 
you know, the Bible says pride goes before destruction. And I believe in my church community when I was younger, you never really talked about your talents, your gifts. You always gave glory to God, which is absolutely important because he is the source. But you never talked about yourself because if you did so, then you're conceited and you were full of pride and arrogance in some regard. And so battling that, the fact to say, you know what? I am a really good writer and letting that be okay without all that other stuff. That was something too, to be able to work through. And so through this whole designing my decade, I've, I've learned through successes and also failures that I am worthy of it all. Yeah. And it all matters. Yes. It all builds towards this, this end that I'm being led upon to do and to execute. Um, and I'm better for it. And I think it's important to say that even though internally you don't feel it because that, that, that took me a while and still does. And I try to impart that onto my daughters too. It's like, look, you know, just like you said, I love how you said, you know, we have these gifts. It's okay to say, Hey, you know what? I'm pretty good at this. I'm a good pilot. I was meant to do this, but I'm not standing up. I'm saying it to myself. I'm not walking around going, look how good, right? Mm-hmm. But you're right. Sometimes we sit there and we say, well, I'm not worthy to say that. Right. Who are you? Who am I to say? <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. I think, and I say this almost in every show, and I think it's, and I, and I think you exemplify this, and this is why I, I always appreciate what you do, is because it's that combination of intensity of will, it's intensity to whatever that, and I hate, I hate the word passion, it gets overused, but I mean the intensity of, well, like I said earlier, making the campsite, but it, I, I do think that is the ultimate obligation that all of us have. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That, I agree that with if you don't subscribe to that, then you're shaming the universe. I really do yeah. think you're, you're wasting space. Yes. So we need to make the place better than we found. So there's an intensity of will behind that. And then you combine that with, um, a sense of humility and where that intersects. That's a powerful individual and you get a bunch of people like that or even a handful. You got a powerful organization, a powerful community, right? And, and it does make it. So maybe it's pie in the sky, but I think that, that, that is what we're kind of tasked to do. Right? I, I don't think it's pie in the sky at all. I believe, just like you said, it's what we're tasked to do. Um, and there's so many sayings, you know, being a writer, you stand on quotes as well. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, we stand on the shoulders of those who yeah, have come before us, for us, the yeah. African proverb, which I subscribe to. Absolutely. I am because we are, we're interconnected. Yeah. Um, there's another one that I've recently heard grow trees so that others can stand in the shade. And it's much more eloquent than that. I yeah, have to find like it exactly. The, but that's amazing. So talk about, I, I know that is your passion and some of the conversations we've had in the community, trying to get more African-Americans to understand the power of entrepreneurship, right? And and and, and I, why is it, what are your frustrations about that? So speak speak truth to that of like, why is it so challenging? Do you think, I know you've, I've heard you say it before, why is it, challenging for particularly the african-american community to understand the power of entrepreneurship as you see it so to fill in the gap and then i can ask um, answer that when i created my business i also was introduced to a group of um, business leaders who were really trying to advance economic development in wichita through entrepreneurship and that's the entrepreneurship task force and when i was invited to the table uh, they had already decided they wanted to do more to activate wichita's african-american business community they just didn't know how to do it and i ended up coming up with the framework that has now led to not just a series of events but an actual uh, 501c3 nonprofit called create campaign 
So with that being said, we've been able to grow our reach to about 300, 400 African-American, Hispanic, Latino entrepreneurs. And to your question, there's a frustration that I have that there is information that is available to help people start and grow businesses. But for many reasons, information is not connected in an intentional manner to our community. And my community does not always connect with the information that is out there. There's a divide. So I'm stepping in this space to be a bridge. And in doing that, the Create Campaign has not only helped businesses start and grow, but we've also helped service partners better understand how do you serve uh, this community? There are differences. There are absolute differences as to why our makeup of um, entrepreneurship looks different than our white counterparts, uh, our startup rates. If you just look at the state of Kansas, and this is reflective across the nation, too, our startup rates um, are not at the same rate. When we do start businesses, we are not able to hire or pay at the same rate as others. Uh, we get denied for business loans at higher rates than others. Um, there's a whole history behind why our community looks the way that it does. And it takes people being willing to stand up to that history and look at what is happening presently to be able to take away those barriers so that we can truly advance this in a way that isn't just a blip in the map or a blip for a certain amount of time, but that it exists over time. Yeah. And to step up into that space and be that bridge, courageous act, right? (laughs) What is it? I mean, how does it feel? All of it. It's all of it. This um, required me to be in rooms where, again, I am the only black. I'm the only, in some instances, woman. I am the only person under the age of 30 at that time when I had started, um, or 40, actually, at that time. Um, It put me at places where I didn't, I couldn't afford to be at certain tables, um, but for the grace of someone extending an invitation. I mean, when you are in a room of, again, all white men who are incredibly rich, have seen more riches than you probably ever will in your lifetime, that that hits. That, I mean, yeah. that kind of hits on some things. But through conversations, um, I was able to become more comfortable and I was able to find my voice in those spaces and more so to trust the space to be heard. Trust in the space to be heard. I mean, I, I'm glad that you said that because... I'm trying to put, you know, I can only imagine because I'm not African-American and I'm not a woman, right? <laughs> yeah, but yeah. to be in that, I can try to empathize. And it's like that, I, I would, my gut's in knots thinking about it right now, you know? And so what the internal, I'm just trying to, I'm curious about the, like, what do you do? Like internally, what do you do? How do you, how do you keep that? You know, I always talk about the four season leadership, you know, composed, confident, consistent, and courageous, right? I think those are the four that all of us need to, to subscribe to. How do you remain composed? How do you remain confident in that? What do you do? And it, I mean, you already answered some of it, I think, your faith, you know, going back, the foundation that you have from the parents and all those mentors you have. But what do you do in that situation? Talk to me through that. Well, when I first got to the tables, I didn't talk. I observed. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it took one of the leaders of that particular entrepreneurship task force meeting to say, you know, we extended invitation to you. It's okay for you to talk. (laughs) (laughs) And I had a choice. I could have chosen in that moment to, you know, mask over how I was feeling. Sure. Thanks. You know, or really talk about it. And one thing, when you find yourself being the only in a particular space, you have to look at the space and see if you will make the choice to be an advocate or if you're going to make a choice to be present and carry the information back or 
just be an observer. Um, and one of the things that I always look at is, do you have me here to be a token? Mm -hmm. Or are you really for real about making change? Mm -hmm. And I had that conversation with the leader and not just on the things that he said, but also in some follow-up meetings, noticing some of the things that he did that let me know through action and deed, this is a safe space. I felt okay to go ahead and move forward in the work. It wasn't always comfortable, but once I knew it was safe, yeah. I did. And some people never get the indication um, that a space is safe. And that's that. And others don't wait for a space to indicate that they're safe. So maybe, um, if I had had those lessons, I would have been more vocal in the first few meetings. But I tell you, what ended up happening was so much respect and regard was given to me by those men who I thought I had nothing in common with. Yeah. And it led to not only um, a successful event for African-American entrepreneurs, but what it did was it created a network of people who I really can have critical conversations with as it relates to race without it being about tokenism. Yeah. Well, see, and I think that's what's so great about when I called you tenacious at the beginning. It's because even sitting there and making the choice, I can see it can be difficult. Do I, do I speak up or do I stay silent, you know? And making that, sometimes staying silent, like you said, just to observe, to read the room, to read what's going on, but to not give up, right? And to not walk away from that first meeting. It's like, okay, I didn't say anything. And then maybe, oh, man, am I, are they just having me here as a token? You know, is this that what, you know? We've got diversity. But She's you, here. Right. That's right. You know, <laughs> see what, see how good we are? Right. Yeah. And so, but you stuck to it, right? Mm -hmm. And then to have the courage, the conversation. That was the game changer. For that's me. the game changer. Yeah. And so there's two sides of this. Number one, if you are in positions of power, regardless of what the spaces look like, but if you're noticing that there's not full engagement or equity of voice, then as a leader, you create the atmosphere that encourages that and don't always wait for someone to bring it up. I mean, that's our jobs is to create accepting and inclusive atmospheres. But then again, for the person who's sitting quietly. Really take tasks on yourself. You're in that room, but it's not just good enough to be in the room. That's right. And sometimes people celebrate just being in the room. No, I didn't celebrate just being in the room. I was grateful to be in the room, but I knew there was work if I was going to be in that room. Yeah. Oh, I love that. I mean, that's why, I mean, I think your your communication background and knowing that and how people communicate, that's probably served you well too, I would imagine. Yes, absolutely. That and then being able to package things. Because another thing that I was noticing is that when you look at, uh, talk about a dose of leadership and authenticity, when you look at um, the mainstream communities, marketing materials, for example, um, there's a certain look that comes about with professionalism when you're again in corporate America. There's a certain standard that you have to rise to. And all too often, startups, regardless of the background, don't necessarily always have the resources to be able to get that look. Mm -hmm. But couple on top of that, the expectation that or the perception that, well, you know what, your enterprises aren't good enough anyway. We're always going to have to settle or sacrifice if we choose to use minority services. So if we don't have the look, there's that added perception that's um, placed onto us. And so it was really important for me that anything that I touch, any client's project that I worked with, anything that I did for the Create campaign, it needed to look 
the part and be packaged so we could at least take away the perception that um, we're not worthy or we're not as professional as others. And in me doing so, I think that the entrepreneurs who I work with, they are now understanding the, the importance of professionalism in appearance. I mean, sometimes your business card is is the first contact. And there's so many perceptions that can be made just upon, again, a business card or do you have a website or not? Are you just operating off of Facebook? I mean, there's all these preloaded conceptions about your ability to, to perform your service or create your product. Mm-hmm. I didn't want any of that to come into play um, when dealing with the real issue, which was how do we activate more African-American entrepreneurs? I know how to design flyers. I know how to package things. We're going to take that away from being a reason not to push forward this program. So, so maybe you, you're talking about that, but what? how did the Create campaign go from nothing to a full idea to where it is now? I mean, what what drove you to say, I want to create this event where we can gather this community and, and, and pass this knowledge that, that you're talking about? How did it start? Well, I was noticing that, again, there is that barrier. So how do we bring people together? And then I thought, well, it could be as simple, quote unquote, as a warm introduction. If you're thinking about and these are all my partners, so I love working with them. But if you're thinking about an SBA or a Kansas Small Business Development Service um, Center and you don't feel like you're equipped to go and take part of their services because you're not fully prepared, mm-hmm. um, on the other hand, they're saying, well, no, we're here to serve all entrepreneurs. Why aren't they coming to us? There's a gap. So I said, if we can get them in the room mm-hmm. to be able to lead workshops and talk to these entrepreneurs and the entrepreneurs can walk away with not just a business card, but a face to go with that business card. And again, what I learned, an indication that this organization is safe. I can trust them to show up and they'll take care of me. Mm -hmm. I'll be okay. We created that type of environment. Um, And so what I did... I called it the Create Campaign because we want to be able to not just be consumers. We want to be creators. And so that's where the name comes from. And we were just going to have a half-day workshop at Wichita State University where we invited, we thought we'd get a cohort of 35 black entrepreneurs. And the whole idea was to get them in the room, make those connections, and then follow them to see if they actually followed up with the service partners. We did not get 35 that year. We got 77. And a lot of that was from my connections from being a cultural affairs reporter where I did cover entrepreneurship too, um, to people knowing me. It was very personal. Um, and I, I was okay to be that because, again, the entrepreneurship task force through the leadership said and, and created that space where I was okay to lend myself to this effort, not just my knowledge. It was me. Yeah. And so 77 black entrepreneurs, after that event, they started calling me, me Christina, how do I create a business? Christina, how do I? Do? I was like, wait a minute. I'm not an SBA. I'm not a KSBDC. Go meet with the people who you've connected right. with. They still needed that assurance. So I knew there was more work to do. Yeah. And where are we at now? Oh, my. (laughs) Where we're at now. Um, We have grown. Like I said, that event was 2015. In 2016, we ended up having two events. We created a reception that led into our forum. Great. Fantastic. The third year, we recognized that just a reception and a half-day event wasn't enough, so we expanded to six months of programming and expanded to KCK as well through our partners. 
Um, that proved fantastic. The year after that, we said we're doing great with African-American entrepreneurs. What happens if we expand to Hispanic Latino entrepreneurs? That happened. Uh, the end of 2017, we formalized our nonprofit, said, if anything happens to me, I don't want the work to go away. So we formalized as a 501c3 tax-exempt nonprofit. A year later, a bank um, in the neighborhood I grew up, ironically, was not seeing traffic the way that they needed to, so they were going to close. And so the president went to our council person and said, hey, instead of another abandoned building being here, how could this building be reused? Long story short, that building is now an asset of the CREATE campaign. It was gifted to my nonprofit from the bank. We spent a year doing um, renovations because, again, a bank is not what I envision for the space, which is an entrepreneurship training hub, in addition to shared office space. And we opened our doors officially November 13th. Yep. I remember seeing, well, I, I, I was at that first 2015 Create campaign yeah. I watched. And it was amazing uh, to sit there and even the speakers and just the connection and, and everything that was happening. It's amazing to see here we are almost five years later. And you got a building and everything. So where is it? <laughs> okay, you, you're approaching 40. <laughs> you're writing your new promises down. What's 50 look like and what does Create Campaign look like 10 years from now, do you think? So that's funny. People will ask me if I'm doing design in my decade for the next decade. And I don't know. I'm scared of what it can unleash. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. No, um, I am looking at what does 50 look like. And what I see with the Create campaign is we are a regional hub for minority business development. And I'm really thinking about what happens if we narrow that focus to African-American businesses, narrow it back. Um, because I'm starting to see a lot of great infrastructure being built on the Hispanic Latino side, that is fantastic. And so I just want people to go where they're comfortable and being served. And if it's us, it's us. Regardless, we serve everyone, which has been cool to see too. Well, I'm excited for you. I can't believe it's we're going on someone 40 minutes of, of talking. Do you oh, believe wow. it's been that long? It goes by quick. How can people connect with you, learn more about you, get in touch with you? Well, thank you again for the opportunity to share a bit about my my life and where we're going. Um, so for Create Campaign, we're online at www.createcampaignks.com. If you want to know about our building, that's Founders Grove, and it's www.foundersgroveks.com. Uh, um, in terms of myself and my company, cmlcollective.com. We're also on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn. Connect with her, folks. She's a real deal. I'm glad to have her part of the Dose Leadership leadership Community. Like I said, I'm a big fan. I have been from afar. I'm always here to support you, Christina. So just always know that uh, I'm one of your biggest fans. So thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Hey, thanks for listening to this special entrepreneurial and leadership series, The Dose of Leadership, brought to you by my friends at Equity Bank. Make sure you, to subscribe to Dose of Leadership where you can hear more great stories in this unique and special series. If you're enjoying this podcast, please take a listen to all of my Dose of Leadership podcasts, all of my episodes, and see why Fortune, Entrepreneur, and Eat Magazine all recommend this as a must-listen. Dose of Leadership features candid conversations with amazing guests, leading high-performing experts and organizations, large and small, all over the world. Find Dose of Leadership on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher, and go ahead and visit doseofleadership.com where you can find out more information about the show, myself, my speaking engagements, my keynotes, live seminars, and my mastermind events. Thanks for tuning in and have a great day.